This is Brett. And this is Sean. And, and this, this is, is bonus, bonus BS. And I, we can't do that right at all. We should f- <laughs> just put that in the show right there. Right, hold on. <laughs> yeah. Bonus BS, a supplemental show to Gaming and BS podcast where we cover interviews and other such topics not found in our weekly episodes. Enjoy. The following recording takes place at GameholeCon 2016, a gaming convention held in Madison, Wisconsin in November, and features Mark Miller, the person behind the long-standing tabletop role-playing game, Traveler. We extend a sincere thank you to Mark for allowing us to bring this to you. All right, so we're going to start this seminar. I do this, some of you have come in late, so we're going to start over. Um, I like to do a question and answer session because I could tell you what I know and go off on some tangent of what I think is important, but you don't care. But at least in response to questions, I'm going to answer some, I'm going to appeal to at least one of you for as long as that question's on the table. So we'll do it that way. But I'll make a brief introduction to begin with, and that is that Traveler is 40 years old next year. It was, came out in its little black box original version my goodness, 40 years ago, uh, July of, 27, of, of 76, 77, July of 77, at the Staten Island uh, um, uh, Origins Game Fair, sponsored by SPI. So that was a lot of fun. It's been a lot of fun since then. We've got dozens of game systems, it seems, out there for Traveler. Um, But that's introduction. Let's start with some questions, and we'll start with you. Uh, there were two computer games that were really awesome. I was wondering if there's any plans to do another one. Thank you. That's a good question. Um, we've entertained a lot of ideas on on games, MMOs, standalones, um, toolkits. There's a iPad toolkit out there, I think. Um, I'm actively working with somebody, well, first of all, in addition to those two computer games, we did an Apple II version of Traveler called Trader. And it was unusually compelling. It basically was a text, little green letters on an Apple II screen, um, journey through the Spinward Marches, and all it did was analyze the UWP, determine what cargoes are available, made them available for you to buy, paid you the trade and commerce price for it when you sold it, and you tried to keep from going broke as you traveled through the Spinward Marches. That was Trader. We sold it on a little, what? I think I played that game. <laughs> you know, I have one of the guys I work with independently wrote that game, he's a programmer, many years ago, because he wanted to do that thing. And so I recently resurrected a, an Apple II emulator on my Mac and uh, that programming and ran through it. And it was unusually compelling. I mean, it's, you're out of world. Here's a cargo. Do I have enough money to buy it? I pay for my fuel, I pay for my crew, I pay the costs, I pick a world, and uh, usually I'm in a Beowulf, so I'm restricted to jump one. And here I go to the next world, do I make money? I'm desperate, I have to do something to make money. It is a lot of fun. And we're looking at doing it as a, a smartphone game, um, using the concept I call micro-boredom. You know, literally, you can visit a world, complete that transaction, and suspend the game until the next time you have a chance. Between classes, waiting for the bus, whatever you're doing, that point is you're able to play that game for as little as, or as much as you want to. It's not hand-eye coordination. It's mostly dealing with the existing rule set that's already in your mind in Traveler. Um, the concept's something like this. Your friend Rob has given you a starship. It's in orbit above Regina, loaded with cargo, 
go to it. And the game is pretty self-explanatory self from there. Um, get enough money, you can improve your drives, go to jump two. You can swap this ship out for a scout that's surveying the systems instead getting paid so much every system that it surveys. You can become a um, space patrol looking for pirates. You can be a pirate. Um, all kinds of choices, but it's still, the character is more the ship than it is the person. Um, one of the things is that time increments. It's seven days in jump, and so the calendar moves forward seven days. It takes you know, a day for each of these events that you're doing in system to refuel at the gas giant or whatever you're going to do, um, to reload cargo, to sell your cargo. Here you go. Um, it'd be a fun game to play, and it conceivably could carry you anywhere in the Traveler universe. We already, how many of you know about Traveler Map? TravelerMap.com. You can see the entire Traveler universe laid out, zoom down to individual worlds, zoom out to see the whole galaxy. And it, you really, if you haven't, you should really explore it. It shows where the Empress Wave is. There are mechanisms to show you where the Empress Wave will be at certain dates, um, all kinds of things. That will be the um, the data foundation for playing this game on your smartphone. Um, so, answer to your question, that's the sort of computer game we're looking at doing. Um, and, uh, you know, that's the basis. There are other things we think. We're going to make it multi-level marketing. You get a slice of what your friend gets if you give him a starship. So we're encouraging you as players to give this game, which is free, to other people, free to them, and you get a slice of their trading earnings. So you can build a trade empire by hiring enough, enticing enough people to play the game. In-app purchases, you can buy mega credits if you don't want to spend a lot of time, uh, or if you want a better ship or whatever. No plans to do that. Okay. If somebody comes to me and wants to do it, I'm happy to talk about it, but no plans. I've spent a lot of time trying to make that happen, and it hasn't, so I'm moving on. More questions? I've heard rumors that Joss Whedon ran a Traveler campaign in college, which is... You know, and if you watch Firefly, obviously you can see most of the, you know, traveler archetypes in the show. And I was just wondering if you had heard that or if that's just a rumor. I love that rumor. <laughs> <laughs> Ken Whitman um, really researched it and, and came up, wrote it up as a rumor. Um, and he didn't do the work. Somebody else had done the research. But there is strong evidence that Josh Whedon has said that Firefly was based on a role-playing game he played in college. And if you look at the available ones, it was, you know, it couldn't have been any of the others. They would not have worked out into Firefly as we know it if they were any of the others. Um, and so I re re resurrect that on my Facebook streams once in a while just for fun. Um, it doesn't look like Josh Whedon's going to confirm or deny <laughs> for our purposes, but it's fun to talk about. But that brings up the, uh, one of our issues is um, Spinward Traveler. How many know what Spinward Traveler is? Good. A uh, TV pilot, Kickstarter project by Ken Whitman. Um, fascinating concepts. He came to me and said, I want to do this, and we've worked together for close to 20 years. And so I said, sure, <laughs> let's. Um, it's had some bumps in the road. Um, he's made some people very angry with him. Um, but uh, the, the biggest challenge he has is that 
he severely underestimated his budget and spent all his money before he was done. And now he's trying to finish this with whatever editing and work he can do. So um, it's hard for me to say what's going to happen until it actually happens, but he says it's going to happen. He says it's going to happen relatively soon. And when, when that's done, then people who are angry at him can be angry at him, but at least he's produced the product. It's hard to make progress reports when there is no real progress to report, except, okay, I've worked on it, and now I'm 97% done as, a first toast, as opposed to 94% done. So we'll see where that goes. But I have, I have hopes for it, um, at least as something that's fun to watch. You know, um, I, have a, I have some friends at, in town who produced a video, some other subject, and um, entered it in a bunch of fest festivals. And so it really opened my eyes to that process. And I think we're going to shop it to a variety of festivals who mostly care about it if you have to pay their entry fees. So we'll do a bunch of those and see if we can't get some publicity that way. Um, and it'll be fun. I mean, the Josh Whedon's a great backstory to throw in there if that's what we're going to do. You know, Ken came to me and he, he made this proposal. Think of how I have this standard that I use, which is I call it a family standard. It, it's about sexual content. You know, we don't need sexual content in this game. I've, I've worked selling printing to people, and people do things and they write games and whatever, and there's a sexual content to them, and I want to say, you know, you could make a lot more money if you just went directly to the triple X version of something. But no, you're at half X, just enough to offend some people, but not enough to do any good for what you want. Why not take that X at half X out and do something based on the quality of the concept in the first place? And so Ken's heard that lecture from me time and again. And so he proposes to me an all-woman crew of a starship. <laughs> and my eyebrows were, he said, no, no, it's great. <laughs> and in, in some ways, it's just, it's perfect. It's, you know, self-empowered women starship crew instead of the standard mix that we see. So we'll see how it works. I think it'll be fun. What's that? I think I've seen it now. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, okay. Next question. Any plans for another novel? Mark? Absolutely. Absolutely. Left us there. So how many have read this novel? Come on. You haven't read the novel? Okay. I'm hawking this. You know, I spent a long time, and by a long time I mean years, refining the Traveler 5 rules. And when I finally finished that process to my satisfaction, this had been bubbling in my mind behind it. And it took less than six months to write because this, the universe was sitting there in the back of my head. And there are so many ideas but this is one that gave us a chance to actually see what the empire was like and how it evolved and answered questions that I had in my mind all the time. You know, that <clears throat> the joy of creating a universe is that you get to make things up and sometimes you don't have them fully fleshed out. And so we have this, Frank Chadwick wrote the original list of the empire, emperors. And you know, so it was a dull list. It's, you know, this emperor and the next emperor and the next emperor. And he just threw things in, kind of, like right of assassination. What does that mean? Um, um, Empress Margaret was killed in a tunnel collapse. What does that mean? Just an accident? How can that happen? All these things that were so important have gained importance. 
But I didn't know what the answers were. And I had to make all those work together into this novel. And that's what the novel tells us, among other things. Um, I have these metaphors that have always been in my mind. Um, how does the empire work? How do, how do you have different tech levels? How can you have an empire without a homogenous tech level? Um, and yet, the Earth doesn't have a homogenous tech level. The, you may have cell phones in Rwanda, but they can't possibly build them themselves. They can't even, can't even repair them themselves except by importing parts. And yet, the fact that we have cell phones in Rwanda has not changed their, the tech level of that primitive country. How do we deal with those? And that was what I was struggling to do within this story. Um, one thing that I was struggling to do. Um, along the way, okay, so who's read it? Okay. What do you think of the Dakasari? Is it real? Okay. When I read it, I thought it was. <laughs> Looking back on it, I'm no longer so sure. <laughs> okay, good. Then that worked. <laughs> I'm not sure if it's real either, but I'm not sure that it's not real. But that was how I wrote it. I wanted to be sure there is nothing in there that you can use to prove or disprove the existence of the Dakasari. Um, how about Anna? What do you think of her? Okay, see, I've had people come back to me and one of the things they say is, that's the hero they want, heroin in this case, but that somebody who's a retired school teacher who's lived all their life just doing ordinary stuff in America or wherever, and now gets to go on an adventure. You know, that's what we all want. Um, you know, I mentioned my mother in the dedication. Um, when I was a, a boy, my mother was a typical stay-at-home mother. Um, my father worked. She stayed at home. She took care of the house, cooked the meals, and did everything. And she seemed totally unremarkable. And only when you listen to stories, and I didn't hear enough of the stories until I got much older, did I realize that she had sailed the Pacific, lived in China, lived in, and this is China in the 30s. Um, my father found a house for her to stay, he was in the Navy. He found a house for her to live in China and to find a nice house, she had to find a nice European family so she lived with a nice German couple <laughs> in the 30s. Um, there are different, people are capable of being different than we think they are. And that's the whole point of this Anna thread. Um, it's also a nice counterpoint to what else is going on. We see ordinary life instead of fantastic life that Jonathan Bland is doing. You all are being left in the dark. It's basically you have read the novel, you haven't. You need to read it to see what Traveler does in the long-term span of history. But your question was, is there a novel no another novel in there? So I'm gonna preview it for you. Because <coughs> I have a rule that I impose on myself, and that is I'm constrained by canon. I'm constrained by what's been written before. Now, a lot of it is kind of flighty, and so it's easy to wiggle around. And I will change it if I need to, or if it doesn't work, because I can say, well, poorly recorded, or whatever. But this story ends in the early 700s and the clock of history of the imperial calendar tells us the next major event that we're going to see is the psionic suppressions. And we don't know anything about it, but at this point in the book, at this point, 
we talk about psionics as something that is kind of pretty much what we think of it today. You can prove it, you can't prove it, you can't not prove it. It's just fringe science. And the science, psionic suppressions flat out makes it not only illegal, it means it's unethical and immoral and society won't accept it. And basically anybody who says, you know, I, I think of a parallel. What is a parallel in American society today? What is something people won't tolerate at all? And, you know, most, most things we talk about that way are sexual. Um, child sexual abuse, um, incest. Those, they're, they're very powerful things in our society and we have rejected them and they are, you know, nobody would dare speak up and say in favor of them. Um, and that is what I've always portrayed in the golden age of Traveler is how the empire addresses psionics. That it is just totally forbidden, totally against common decency. And one reason is because if it's just allowed, writing this book 30 years, 40 years ago, if psionics is commonplace, then society is totally changed because people can read minds and people can do things. And so I had to make it an underground talent as it is. Everybody who buys the system, everybody wants to have psionics even though it's wrong. And the next book is trying to tell you why it is wrong and why society, even from 800 to 1100, 300 years later, thinks that it's wrong and that no decent person would have used psionics or consider it or approve of it and why the evil Jordani Empire, which uses it, is indeed so evil. And of course, one reason is if you have psionics, <coughs> Not only can you read minds, you can adjust minds. And in, Sayana, in Jodani society, um, pretty much everybody's happy. Do you want to live in that society? You know, the sewage workers are happy. You know, the 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 maintenance workers are happy. The underpaid factory workers are happy. The unemployed who are slowly starving are happy. And do we want to live in that society? Well, I'm assuming we don't, but <laughs> whatever. Um, so we are working on, I am working on the next book. I'm also reading, working on an audio book of this one, which will, I'm hoping, be out by the first of the year. Um, that's a lot of fun, reading it. Next question. Yes. In the absence of the Journal of the Traveler's Aid Society um, and the <coughs> probably prohibitive cost it would uh, take to resurrect that, have you ever considered doing something like a Traveler podcast on a regular or semi-regular basis just with updates, with you know, possibly traveler news service bulletins, just all the you know, possible little bits and pieces you or you and someone else might be able to cover with something like that. You know, I have thought about that, and and somebody said I should do a Twitter, you know, uh, update, and I should do uh, I do an email update when I have something new that I can talk about. But that's about as far as I'm able to do. You know, I wish I could do pod podcasts, but I would start and they wouldn't finish. You know, that we'd have podcast one, two, and where's three? Well, I don't have anything to say. So I've thought about it, but it just doesn't work for me. Some people like to do podcasts, like to be that personality, and like to do that, but I don't. So I don't do it. You could just get somebody to be the host. And well, that'd be fun too, but I just, it, 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 
I don't have that host, you know. And as it is, I mean, I'm, I can read this for the audiobook an hour to an hour and a half, and at the end of that time, the, the down, sound engineer tells me, it's time to quit because I'm making too many mistakes or my voice is, is not working as well as it should. And so I'm doing two or three nights a week, that much time, and then the Cubs game gets in the way, <laughs> you know, and all that stuff. So, um, and, and that's me trying to find the time to do that. Um, I enjoy doing it, but it's, I'm past the time of having schedules in my life. <laughs> More questions? I could keep asking lots of questions. Well, you just keep asking. Uh, so the imperial use of the personality waivers, was that ever in a, mentioned anywhere else in past traveler materials? Um, it is alluded to in Expedition to Jodain with a personality overlay device to where, and that was a long time ago, I was trying to figure out how to send a personality into, into this mind-reading society. And at least I believed that there was some concept of doing that. Um, and it bubbled to the surface then when I started doing Traveler 5. You know, Traveler 5 is trying to distill all of the things for, for the last 35 years into one rule set. Uh, and one of them was wafers. Uh, I thought that that was, you know, wafers are a game mechanic. You're stuck and you don't know how to fix your starship drive. You put the wafer in and you know. And so you, now you're not going to die in the middle of deep space because the jump drive failed. Um, and then we move from there. Okay, if we can do that, then must be able to put somebody's personality in. There's a, game, there's a book called Vacuum Flowers by uh, Michael Resnick, I think. Um, I may have the name wrong, but, but he has entertainment personalities. It always influenced me. It's a great semi-cyberpunk story. And uh, that certainly influenced me. I enjoyed his his treat on, treatment of it, of a a personality implanted in somebody takes over from who the real person is, and now this stronger personality is running around doing things. And that struck me as an interesting storytelling possibility. It's much more a storytelling possibility in a novel form than it is usable in adventuring. Um, Which brings me to another thing. There's something called gun stuff, I guess we'll call it. I mean, all this fiction in role playing, especially, wants to have gun stuff in it. <laughs> and um, um, my daughter was editing a book for White Wolf, and uh, she she recounts this story of of Somebody walks in to a room and sees the rack of guns, and there's a, and it lists you know eight different kinds of specific guns and all this sort of stuff, uh, a Mauser broom handle and a this and a that and and describes them and deals with them, and um, you know he saw all of this in a second and moved on. <laughs> but um, but it was playing to this desire of the readers to hear about guns. And so I had to do that in, in this book. You know, It's an obligatory scene that you have to do. And so I'm gonna, I'm gonna share you, those of you who've read it, then that's fine, but I'm going to find the one for the rest of you. Um, so this is nice and short, it's like a page. Um, this is Anna talking um, on a journey she knows not where, uh, accompanied by uh, Jonathan Bland, who is occupying the body of her husband, 
who has Alzheimer's, and so he's no longer there. And so now he's, at this point, stopped, and she said, at one point, we could have refueled at the local gas giant, but Rents, that's her husband, inhabited by Jonathan, directed our ship to the main world of the system, a deserted globe with varied biomes and neither sofans nor indigenes. While the crew maneuvered the maws of huge hoses to the banks of the river, Rents took me to the edge of the purplish forest. He gave me an ocular overlay, a gray curve that covered my eyes. From within, all appeared the same, except for a bluish tinge. All the while, he talked to me in a confident tone. <coughs> here, this is a snap 10. You hold it here, like this. I had never touched a gun in my life. Notice, the cl notice this clicking part in the back. It won't work unless you grip tightly. If that isn't pushed down, it won't fire, even if you drop it or throw it or bump it. A Colt 45 has a grip safety at the back. If you don't hold it firmly, it doesn't work. You pull the trigger without pulling the grip safety, it doesn't work. The hammer can be cocked, you can drop it. But I don't say that, I just say this, and it's just him describing it to her. This is the front. It's important to tell her where the front is. <laughs> This is the front. It shoots out little needles at half the speed of light. He laughed to himself as he said this particular fact. Marines joke that the bullets come out at half the speed of light. And when recruits hear that, they believe it, and it's a joke. See? So he's just repeating what Marines say as jokes. And she just doesn't even get it because she doesn't know anything about guns. When you hold this with the grip compressed, like this, you see a dot out there somewhere. See? That's where it'll hit if you shoot. But there's a safety. It's body fenced. If you point at a person wearing a crew badge, the dot is green. Safe. It won't shoot. Everywhere, everywhere else, the dot's red. Deadly. Shoot, and it kills. He was gentle as he spoke. If you know you're, I know you are accustomed to calling an enforcer if you need help, to delegating the protection of your safety to someone else. On our journey, there will be no one else on whom you can depend, not even me. In fact, I will depend on you more than you know. This gun is just a tool. You carry it as I carry mine because there are forces in the universe that do not care about you or your health or your life. They're dedicated to winning the evolutionary battle, and in the process, they will trample everything in their path. This tool is an equalizer, our own evolutionary advantage. I searched my memory of literature and found comforting examples of roles such as this as I felt the Snap 10's weight in my hand. Now, that's gun stuff, and you can read it as gun stuff, but it also talks about and that's what I want to do, is not just do what is easy to write. There are at least three other levels here. One is, it's a tool, not just a fun thing to shoot things with. Um, if you've read the book, you know that body fencing is an important concept. Pages later. Um, all of that is meant to do more than just be a fun read of something about guns. Um, and I think it achieves it, but you all need to read it to find out. Okay, more questions? Um, are we going to see a uh, revisiting of uh, the society that built the Anic Nova? Okay, I'm going to tell you some secrets. Okay, because you know I've long puzzled. How does this work? What is the Anacnova? Because when I wrote it, I didn't know, you know. But I'm constrained by canon, and so there are things I really want to know. Um, and there's a, a select group of people that I'm working with, trying to move traveler from the Golden Age 
1902, after the wave, after the uh, rebellion, after all of the turmoil, so that we have the same star systems, but a lot is different. And among other things, we all know what all of imperial society is like. And now the wave has come through and crashed over it and changed things. And that's a great adventuring environment. Um, so, let's see. Do you know what the ship of Theseus is? The ship of Theseus. It's a Greek story where they say, here's the ship. It's a great ship that Theseus sailed 300 years ago. And our carpenters have carefully maintained it every year since. And when a board rots, we replace it. And over the past 300 years, we've replaced every single board. Is that the same ship? And that's what the Anagnova is. It is a ship that is 7,000 years old. But the parts aren't 7,000 years old. It's just everything's been replaced time and again because it has special powers. And the powers still exist. So the story is this. This is a story that hasn't been told, but the story is this. A long time ago, we know from our calendars and all of the data that we have and everything about Traveler that the Volani discovered jump drive. They didn't do it very well. I mean, literally, their jump drive is terrible. I mean, it's fuel inefficient and it's bulky. And, but nevertheless, nobody else had it, and so that gave them an advantage. And they continued to have that advantage for some 2,000 years. And then they discovered jump two, a very good jump two. And the story is that there is a, an explorer who is marooned somewhere in his explorations and adopted by the aliens who live in that system who don't have jump drive. But when they see his jump drive, as inefficient as it is, they understand immediately because they're tech 28 or 30 or whatever, what it does and how, it, and they repair it for him. And he comes home from this lost expedition 20 years out with jump two instead of jump one. And that's where they get jump two. But we think of all kinds of ways on how, how drives work. For example, Traveler 5 talks about hop drive, which is 10 times as powerful as jump drive, and skip drive, which is 100 times as powerful. Um, and there are some other things that we're going to gradually reveal. And one of them is called the Hieronymus drive. And it's not really a drive, it's a nexus, which you know, we sit around and we dream up drives. We dream up what there is. And we could dream up all kinds of strange things. There's stutter warp and there's just whatever. And, and I haven't done those. But we have done is manipulations of these, how powerful jump drive can be. And this one connects a jump drive with another jump drive. And it exponentiates it. So this is a lot of fun because we have, if you take a, if you connect a jump one drive to another drive, it moves it to the one to the power of the other. Okay? Jump one to one, you get one. Jump one to two, you get one. But as you get into better drives, if you take a two to the second, it's jump four. Two to the third, what's that, eight? And all it is is a connector. And this guy who built the Anagnova did so at that point because although he turned over the jump two to imperial society and they used it to their advantage, he kept that secret and his family has kept the secret through 
the ages that if you connect a jump two drive to a jump three drive, you have jump eight. And that's an incredible advantage for his family line. Does he want to be emperor? Would that be really worth it? Probably not. You can continue your line forever with power beyond being an emperor if you have that sort of power. And of course, think about it, you know, what's a jump six drive to the sixth? What can that do? But that's what the anecdota does. It's got a jump two and a jump, th a jump three and a jump four drive in it. What? I think it has two jump drives in it. Well, maybe. I think it's two and a three or three and a four, but whatever. Yeah, been a while. But there's something. We're going to use Janik Nova to do that. It's a great ship. And it's lost, of course. You know, the family's lost it. What's that? Yes, it's a great ship. More questions. I'm just rambling here, but this is fun. Switching topics a little bit, but since it's a gaming conference and so forth, how have you found the Kickstarter experience? You know, Kickstarter, I got into Kickstarter very early and did not realize what it could do. I mean, I supported a play for a woman who was a student of my wife's in high school. And, you know, we've maintained connection over the years and she had her play and I participated in, we participated in that Kickstarter. And then I saw this ogre thing from Steve Jackson go through the roof. That was crazy. And so I said, I can do that. And it really got me off the dime. It got me moving to do, get T5 done. And, you know, that's, I was hoping I'd have enough to print the book. Came out, made, the, made it possible to do more, much more than that. But Kickstarter, the Kickstarter people don't understand what Kickstarter does. You know, gamer people have understood it. We've gamed it out. Um, and a lot of Kickstarter people just don't understand. Or the, the professionals, the people who run Kickstarter, don't really understand. They're more concerned about making their money. But there are two kinds of people who support Kickstarters. And generally I'll call them, the first one is, you guys who care about a project and want to be part of it and it gives you the opportunity. If you lived in Bloomington Normal with me and we gamed together and you knew this was happening, you could help me do something. But it'd be hard for me to ask you all, can you guys all, you know, buy your books early and, you know, and help me? Kickstarter makes that happen. For people who want to help that, to be part of, to be in on the ground floor. And the other part, the other kind of supporter, backer, think of it as a cheap pre-order system. Ah, it's coming out. I want that. I'll order that. I do that myself. I mean, I see something on Kickstarter. Oh, I'd like to have that. Wow, a drone that'll follow me around and take pictures of me. It didn't work, but but I supported it. I thought I'd like to do it. You know, I didn't go all out for it, but I ordered one because I thought that'd be keen, and it's I like that. The cheap pre-order system. Um, there are people who try to do Kickstarters who are scamming. I don't think they mean to scam. I think they overestimate, underestimate something, and don't have enough ties or, or um, dedication to make it work, and they give up and they go away. And we all lose money on that deal, and that's a shame. But that's I've lost money on stocks that I bought, too. 
and I don't think that they're scamming me, and usually they aren't. It's just things don't work out. Um, I try to be judicious about Kickstarter. I think that good projects, Kickstarter is just a boon to them. Um, I am always appreciative of the people who participate in Kickstarter. You know, more so than, you know, I'm appreciative of you guys who just buy stuff in the hobby stores. I love that. You know, that support has always meant something to me. I remember when we first produced a game, Drawing the Coastin, $14.75 at a time when gas was 25 cents a gallon, maybe 40 cents a gallon. And I remember talking with my partners and we said, when's this gonna end? When will we have sold all of these people who could possibly want a Russian front game? And it's just gonna stop, and it doesn't stop. More people keep coming in. I'm always appreciative of the people who, who you know, you're getting something out of it. You enjoy the book, you enjoy reading it. It's a hobby, it's something you, uh, it's a way you spend your time. It's, it's in its own way, just like buying food for a cooking class or for going to a movie or a play or a Cubs game, you know, fine. But this hobby is one that's just so much fun to play in and be in, and I've been in it a long time. And I'm always amazed, I shouldn't be amazed, I won't say amazed because I've grown to expect it. Do you know that, so we had Game Designers Workshop. And it, as it existed, it was all mail order. I mean, we sold things to stores and all that, but we had a big mail order business. And people would pay for it with checks. And we never held checks to let them clear. I think we lost a total of $40 over our entire existence in terms of bad checks because gamers don't write bad checks. If they do, there's a good reason, not because I'm trying to scam you guys. This business is just a group of people who just care about this enough. It's their, the, the center of our lives and we enjoy it. And Kickstarter just has expanded that connection that I get to have with as many of you as are interested in it on some project that I'm doing. So it's a lot of fun. It's revolutionized gaming. They weren't particularly Kickstarter experts or anything, but they were suggesting that maybe there's been a, a retraction of gaming Kickstarter projects. Would, have you, do you know if that's accurate? I just kind of mind. I think people are very leery about Kickstarter. Compared to say two years ago. Oh yeah, Kickstarter was this, this bright and shiny new thing. I mean, yeah. Steve, Steve Jackson did this almost a million dollars for Ogre, yeah. which among other things, you know, didn't make him a million dollars. He had to spend that money to make things happen. Um, and he's actually, I think said that, you know, he would think very hard about that sort of a project, because it it's not just free money. Um, people mistake Kickstarter. They think Kickstarter is going to get them support. All Kickstarter is is a medium, just like the internet. You still have to drive traffic to your site. You still have to tell people about this, and. I, Traveler has a large community who follow it, and of those, that community, a lot of people supported the Kickstarter, but not all of them. Some of them waited or didn't see it in time. Kickstarter, I think, can get beat into the ground if you just use it again and again and again without thinking through what you're producing. And I think people, you know, it was inevitable that some Kickstarter stuff was going to go bad. But even the stuff that's gone bad, for the most part, you think about it that we encounter stories of people who stole $500,000 from some, this, this lawyer stole $500,000 from some old man uh, over the course of 50 or 10 years or whatever. But he didn't start out, almost certainly he didn't start out, I'm gonna steal money from this man. It's just, he was a little short, and here was some money, and the ethics didn't keep him from taking it, and he really 
meant to pay it back and then he needed some more and he took that. Maybe the guy will die and the insurance will pay off. And you get the same with Kickstarter. People don't try, I'm going to do a scheme and rip people off. It's, I hope this works and then it doesn't. And you know, it's not like that's just Kickstarter because I can remember in the early days of, of wargaming in the 70s, there were companies who announced product and would and you pre-order it and it wouldn't come and wouldn't come and wouldn't come. And people would, it just, we didn't have the effective communication we do today. But there will always be things that go bad. And it's like loaning money to friends. If you, if you do that, you should just expect it to be a gift and you don't tell them it's a gift because if when it doesn't come back, you know, then you don't have to feel bad. More questions? I've heard, I've heard rumors of a Traveler miniatures game from Mongoose. Any um, thoughts on that? Let's see. Traveler miniatures, yes, I've heard rumors of that too. <laughs> um, and I'm, I'm expecting it's going to happen, but I'm not sure. Um, I'm... I'm you know, Mongoose goes in a different direction than I do, which is interesting. You know, uh, instead of just it all being me, he talks about things that he thinks would be interesting and that people would like. You know, if it'll sell, it means people like it. And so I'm happy to do those experimentations. And I'm anxious to see what that does. You had a question. Yes, would you mind pronouncing Zodani again? Because I heard you say it, and I think I've been mispronouncing it for about oh, 40 sure, years Oh, sure, because now. we don't give a pronunciation guide. Zodani. Zodani. Thank you. People on Twitter were asking. Oh, okay, well, yeah, yeah. write that down. Z-H-O-D-A-N-I. Zodani. It's pronounced just like it's spelled. More questions? Okay. I think we're going to wrap this up. We've just hit 3 o'clock, although we'll still sit here and talk for as long as you want to or until they make us leave. Um, I appreciate this from you. I mean, this is fun talking about this. I, you know, I have a close group that I talk to, but it has to survive that close group Inbred, inbred group of yes men who say, oh, that's a great idea, Mark. <laughs> so, um, you, 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 uh, you mentioned the Zidani concept, uh, the point of view of the Zidani concept from the Imperium. What is it that you see the Zidani consulate's Imperium, uh, English. what exactly do you see the, the opinion of the Zidani consulate toward the Imperium being? Okay, so think of these two things. You see, you have the, um, the Jordani, and, and the Jordani talk about the empire, and they talk about Greg Lee, who wrote Lee's Guide to Adventure for Game Lords, and I work with him on a, lo a lot of things. He has this great idea that when the Jordani send agents into imperial society, or just people, into imperial society. They have to take dishonesty lessons. You know, that they have to deal with the natural prevarication that Im imperials have. We talk nice to each other, although we don't mean it. We harbor, you know, all kinds of emotional turmoil and don't reveal it and then it just bursts out. Um, we don't expect people to tell us what they really mean um, because it would be considered socially inept, you know. You can't just say, oh, time to go. You have to start maneuvering toward this conversation is over. All kinds of things like that. That's how the Jordani feel about American, about, American, about imperial society. Um, 
so then here's the Imperials. They think about Jordani society. And I was telling you something about them, that they read minds. They have abil the ability to teach effectively because they can tell if they're being effective by monitoring the learning mind. They can, um, you know, it's, it's no longer here and here's a test. No, hear this stuff, do you understand the concept? And the monitor can tell if he understands. We don't need tests if we know he understands it. We can make sure they learn what they need to learn. The learning science in Shodani society is superior. Um, diagnosis of mental illness is superior. Um, it, it springs from this idea that they have the thought police, that if someone is just sitting there brooding and drinking uh, his beer and brooding about the, the terrible way he's treated at the post office and he's getting ready to go postal, they catch him. They know he's, what he's doing. And they come in and knock on the door. And you know the, knock, the Gestapo knock on the door is terrifying. The, sh the, the thought police knock on the door is comforting. You're sitting there brooding. And, and the knock on the door, and they come in, and they just lay their hands on you, and they can work with you, and you feel better. The garbage workers like their jobs. The sewage workers who come home covered with junk like their jobs and feel like they're making a contribution to society. But where does that turn into, we don't need to raise this minimum wage to 15, 13 is good enough. Um, and those are the differences that Imperials just hate the idea of their mind being tinkered with, of somebody who can tell what I'm thinking, who can with perfect accuracy know what I'm going to do. And the Jodani hate the idea of this chaos of unrestricted free will. You know, the Jodani, we waver on whether they're good or bad. You know, are they an evil empire? On the one hand, American society would be a lot better off if our psychological treatments had what they could do. It's just you start classifying wage discontent as a mental illness. And we treat it. And people are happy with what they make. And you get a static society where people are pretty much happy with what they've got. And then where's the upward pressure to move ever higher? Have you ever thought about doing a, uh, a book on, on building your own aliens? Like maybe a, a guideline for creating your own minor races? Um, well, now, Traveler 5 has that. So font generation. You know, I always wanted that. I got to do these things that I wanted to do. And one of them is Traveler 5 says, you know, I wanted, okay, roll for number of arms, number of legs. And literally, it allows you to do that. And you end up with a, a, a some idea of the gender structure and caste structure, if any, and the arms and legs and the senses they use. Um, it's pretty much restricted to human environment stuff. But, but you know, I'm still basically using mega travelers. So you need to upgrade. <laughs> you know, uh, it's it's very satisfying to 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 pour through the tables and try and create a character, a a, a species that reflects what you want it to do. You need to get the T5 book yeah. or PDFs on a CD-ROM, you know. Yeah. Um, 
we want to move the traveler universe from the golden age, past all this stuff that nobody likes, you know, the rebellion and the new era and the wave, you know. Yeah, the, the, you know, I'm constrained by canon. I would not have created the wave. I would not have created virus. But you know, they're, they're blessings in disguise. Do you know that I didn't know how to do artificial intelligences. How do you do an artificial intelligence in Traveler? Well, or in, in, at all. I mean, they're just, they're all powerful, except Yeah, but you see, if you if you create them in in the virus era and let them do all their crazy stuff, eventually, you know, American society, any society, cannot survive if it's filled with vampires. They'll just kill everybody, or zombies, or whatever. It, it, our society exists because we have all decided to live within certain constraints. And when somebody becomes more powerful, he gets knocked down. We take care of the less people, more or less, but we're all within this narrow range. Artificial intelligence has, has 800 years, 700 years, I'm trying to get to 1902, for those antisocial powerful artificial intelligences to disappear, to, to not survive because they're not committed to just surviving. And so I see a universe in 1902 that has artificial intelligences running starships. And just like us, they have to make budget. <laughs> they, you know, it, it, oh, this is great. An artificial intelligence in a starship can go anywhere he wants. As long as he can pay for the refits for the drive every year, he can. Um, and so he's all of a sudden constrained to do things just like us and earn a living. That's an interesting character. And it has, instead of just decreeing this, of just saying, this is how it's going to be, it's built on the foundation of 700 years of game history that says this is how we got there. And the wave lets us do that. Because the wave has crashed through society and disrupted it. And the virus has been living in that society. And the ones that can see fit to living, to, to working with others, survive. The other crazy ones, there's nothing less left for them to do. And then we get to do things which are really important, really interesting. You know, Role-playing is fun when you try and reach beyond your own. Some people just play themselves, and that's fine. But to play a character who is significantly less intelligent than you are can be fun. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I don't know a lot of jocks who play weaklings. But it would be challenging to them to have to do something beyond what they are used to doing. Same way, Traveler actually has mechanisms that let stupid people play smart people. You know, because the roles on things are not what the stupid person thinks, it's the referee knows what's going on. And when you confront a problem, it's a die roll on whether you're going to solve it based on the, the book intelligence rather than the player's intelligence. Well, you can play you can play aliens, but you know when you play your aliens, and that's fun to play them. You play a varger, but you have to think through how dogs think instead of people think, and it's fun. You can play your caricature of a dog. <laughs> um, we do, you know, that's how we made varger. They're they're just lap dogs. I mean. The, the book has this process where it says, you know, I just, the, the human character just 
kind of takes charge and tells the dogs what to do. And they pretty much drop in line because they pay attention to alpha males. And uh, that's what role playing lets us do is really play, not just do problem solving. And okay, I'm going to digress again, but this is fun. You know, when we started role playing, be in the 70s, there were books for girls to role play. It was called Seventeen Magazine, you know. And there wasn't a Seventeen Magazine for boys. There was sports. But role playing let boys, I mean, think of the talents, the, the, the abilities that boys got to do in role playing. You know, my, the caricature I have is, I was playing with my eight-year-old grandson, and you know, he kind of winged all the stuff and created his own character. He created a character and it had a billion credits. And then we had lunch for 22 credits. And he subtracted 22 from a billion. Because <laughs> <laughs> he knows how to do that. You carry the one and bring the nine down. And so then he had 999,000. Know, wow. You know, that's grown up work. He hasn't figured it out yet, but that's grown-up work. That know, knowing how to make a budget and build and build a spaceship that fits within a budget, spending money, having enough money to do what you're doing, realizing that somewhere you don't have to worry about the money anymore, that as long as you have this much in your pocket, you don't have to worry about the exact dollar value. That's role-playing for boys. And really, you know, I wish I'd had that when I was a boy, to really understand how to do that. And that's what role-playing does for us. That's what Traveler does for us. It lets you play aliens and think through it. A lot of people just want to build spaceships. That's fine. People want to build alien races. They want to think them through. But there's some little part of their brain that gets to figure out, what do, how does a dog think? How would a cat think, an intelligent cat think? And the one, the, on the one hand, it's they're learning something. But the other is, everything they do is a really a mirror reflecting themselves. And they're learning what they think dogs do, but also how they would do it if they needed to use that process. And that builds minds, that builds people, that builds character. It comes back to, I talked about all of us here, all of the people out here in this building this is good, clean fun. And uh, not a lot of other activities like this out there. We're kind of self-selecting. The good, clean, fun people gravitate to this hobby and have good, clean fun. More questions or whatever. Okay, thank you all. Those of you who haven't, you're welcome. Thank you.